Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, part two of my recent conversation with Wayne Tebow. As you heard me say last week when we aired part one of our interview, Tebow is one of the world's greatest living painters. The Minetti Schrem Museum of Art at the University of California in Davis has just opened Wayne Tebow 1958 to 1968, an examination of Tebow's early work and a look at how he developed his signature style and subjects. The exhibition was curated by Rachel Teagle and is on view through May 13th. The catalog is terrific. Amazon has it for $43 as ever. There's a link to that on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, Catherine Canjo joins me to remember Jack Whitten, who died this week at the age of 78. But first, part two of my conversation with Wayne Tebow. We'll pick up as he and I were talking about his paintings of and inspired by Yosemite, and in particular, his paintings of or that referred to Half Dome. But first, this break. Book your tickets now for the Getty Villas February premiere presentation of Sapo, a provocative play loosely based on The Frogs by Aristophanes. Sapo takes place in mid-1970s San Francisco and L.A., where a young Chicano band sets out to make it big in the music industry. What ensues is a slithery world of mischief and deception. Sapo is adapted and performed by Culture Clash, a Chicano-Latino performance troupe whose work ranges from biting political satire to full-length original drama. The show also features Buyapango, an L.A.-based band whose vibrant sound fuses cumbia, merengue, punta, jazz, and funk. Learn more about this performance and get tickets at getty.edu 360. This season, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Stories of Almost Everyone. Exploring a dominant impulse in contemporary sculpture of the last decade, the exhibition highlights the work of artists who use found or ready-made objects to convey history, sight, memory, and economies of use. With an international roster of more than 40 artists, Stories of Almost Everyone investigates the relationship between material objects and the stories we tell about them. Stories of Almost Everyone is on view January 28th to May 6th at the Hammer Museum. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. You know, your Half Dome paintings, some of your other paintings, especially the Ridgeline paintings, often have kind of a mysterious ethereal cloud there for no apparent reason. abstract almost. Not almost, like totally. Where does that cloud come from? Probably a movement I'm not at all interested in, I don't think, until I find out later I am. (laughs) That's surrealism. And the first person to mention that was my dealer, Alan Stone. He says, God, now you're a surrealist? (laughs) But the interesting thing is that a... um, a meteorologist told me that that happens, actually. At half dome. Yeah, I read that. Because they form some way, these ethereal clouds over them sometimes because of the weather. So could that... I didn't know that when I painted it. So about the surrealist element of the cloud, that could also, you know, to expand that idea, it's kind of the thought cloud of the, of the subconscious... But it, it could also be a reference to the thought cloud from cartoons. Exactly. And did you see the New Yorker cover where the cloud is over the pie? Yes. <laughs> so that's that. So the 
art editor wanted to know if that was the soul of the pie. <laughs> Does pie have a soul? <laughs> so there's a that's an example of your your pre art making cartoon days working its way in. Oh, I am an old cartoon. Yeah, yeah, I love cartoon. Are there any other things in your work that you think specifically reference your cartoon days? Oh, a lot of a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Cartoon and caricature, which I'm very fundamentally interested in. That's interesting. I went through books of yours in the last week or two looking for caricature, and I couldn't really find a lot of caricature. Couldn't find anything that said caricature to me. So where do you think the caricature survives? The caricature of color? Bonard's a great caricature of color, as are Indian miniature paintings. You could almost denote style, stylistic variations based on caricature, whether it's medieval illustrations or Mayan forms, Egyptian. I brought this to some art historians who were very irritated with me, saying that those are not characters, those are stylizations. Now, what in the world is different from stylization and caricature? It seems to me character is a better word because it's more inclusive and expansive potential, but I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. You have a cartooning background, they don't. That's right. Oh, one more thing on, on Half Dome and Yosemite and, 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 and that. To paint Half Dome is to paint granite. Granite is white, which is a color you've been known to use, but granite isn't quite white. It's flecked with black. When you've painted granite, you have not added black. You've added color. Is painting granite interesting to you because it engages a color that you've really kind of owned, white, and that you've had to find other ways of doing something with it? I'm asking that horribly. Gee, I don't know. I do know that I like the granite in Tahoe and in Maine, where those slabs of granite are right in that beautiful blue, deep blue sea colors, almost black and white in a sense, or dark and light at least. You always add color to granite when you paint it, though. Well... Yeah, but there's no such thing as white or black, is there? In the real world. I mean, there is in your paintings. All those white backgrounds really are white. But if you wash your black sweater, you find out it's purple. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Riverscapes and agricultural landscapes. I understand that the standard art historical story of why you started painting riverscapes and agricultural landscapes is that you and your wife bought a house south of Sacramento at one point, mm-hmm. and that you spent time looking out at and beyond your backyard. I think you had pear trees. Yes, a pear orchard. Pear that's orchard. Right. Yeah. So that's nice and wonderful. But surely there's more to why the Central Valley landscape interested you than just that you could see it. I mean, you still had to decide to make scores of paintings of it. So what are the other reasons? Well, it's a largely unknown territory. You mean pictorially? You mean in art history? Yeah, I haven't seen much of it anyway. It's like the bio, I guess, too, and so on in many ways. But it was different for me as a California landscape 
in the fact that it changed so much from oh, yeah. uh, fall to where everything's sort of dark, black, muddy, to spring, which is quite colorful, lots of amazing greens. And then uh, summer with wonderful fruits and vegetables and crops of many kinds, and then fall. So you have these continuing color and uh, form changes. What I wanted to try and do, because I'd go down and draw a lot, particularly from the levees or sometimes just on the ground, and do, do paintings, that I th thought the interesting thing would be if you could do it, would be almost what I did with the city pictures, which finally were all done from memory also, the San Francisco ones, to take units and try to get them to come together. So that's what those Delta series were, were composed of. They're all done from memory and from bringing those various things together, the water, the patterns, the seasons, and to try to get a painting out of that combination. So it really is like a color and design project using actual elements from having drawn and painted there. We touched on fauvism earlier. Mm. Is fauvism more important in the Central Valley landscapes than maybe anywhere else in your work? I think it's more blatant and bigger. I don't think vastly different. It's definitely bigger. I mean, bigger, yeah. yeah. Were you conscious of that when you were when you were, when you were painting them? Mm -mm. Because I mean, it's always different when somebody like me comes along and sees or thinks of twenty of them at once. Because then you really get the opportunity for something to blare out at you when you mm. see or think about a group of them together. But when I do, boy, they scream fauvism and an, and an engagement mm. with mm. that kind of use of color. Yeah. You know, another one of the elements in the riverscapes that's not in fauvism mostly is water. The water, the rivers in in, in the in the in the riverscape and, and farmscape paintings are, are these dramatic gradations of one or two colors. They're really spectacular. Was part of the idea or interest in those paintings to paint water? Well, it was it was a wonderful challenge to try and see you could do with it. I tried lots of different ways of dealing with it. But water, I suppose, was the hinge for most of them, maybe, mm -hmm. primary. Its effect, probably the most dramatic outside of uh, farmers toiling and uh, marking. Are the riverscapes a specific intentional engagement with Thomas Cole's famous painting, The Oxbow, at the Metropolitan? I knew it, certainly, and appreciated it a lot. I think I've thought about it when uh, sometimes trying to see, do I want a pool here? Do I want a reservoir? Do I, what would work in this area? And so on. So the, the use of memory certainly would that would be an enhancement to think about, and I have thought about it. And assigning different... Hudson River painters and 
those marvelous uh, ones that Barbara Novak sort of rediscovered of those nature and culture beautiful black seas and red tide lands and she left out the West though wonderful yeah she cut out the West from her <laughs> histories you're a big tennis player you still play <laughs> still playing wow <laughs> well to say I'm playing at 97 all we do is go out and insult each other for about <laughs> An hour and a half. <laughs> but it gets us out and gets us moving around. Oh, no, I love tennis. Tennis is a magical game. I'm a big tennis nut, so. <laughs> uh, I know you've played Frank Stella a bit over the years, right? <laughs> Who wins? He beat me. He beat you? <laughs> he, uh, he, at that time, was pinning those protractors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he had this looping forehand that, the ball just—that's what it does. Yeah, if you don't move in on it; it destroys you. But that's tennis is like <laughs> tennis. The joy of it is playing on a Mondrian painting. Well, you've made tennis paintings, both of individual tennis players, kind of in the midst of a service motion, <laughs> yeah. and you fulfilled a commission for Sports Illustrated oh, to go paint Wimbledon. treat that was. Yeah. So how did that happen? Well, this crazy art director, a wonderful guy, Dick what, Richard, what? <laughs> there it goes again. He was an art director for Life magazine and got... Matisse to let him do a cover for Life magazine for Christmas of his original, of his, cola, uh, his cutout paper. Oh. When he was doing the chapel. Yeah, yeah. And that put him in good shape. <laughs> they let him do a lot of projects. And when he got to Sports Illustrated, he got some of the pop artists to go to places, sports, and then produce work for the magazine. And he came to me and asked me if I, how I would like to go and make a series of paintings of hockey. And I said, hockey? I never even watch hockey. All they do is fight. <laughs> he says, yeah, but they have a nice white background. Ah, yeah. <laughs> I said, no, doesn't compute. Well, he says, how about the salt flats racing? And you did make a painting of the salt flats, of cars on salt flats. Did I? Yeah, one. Not for him. Not for him. Not for him. Not for him. <laughs> so he says, well, what, what, what would you like to do? And I said, well, I've never been to Wimbledon. Well, that, how that happened. There were four <laughs> paintings in the magazine. Did you make more? Did, I do? Did, did you make more at Wimbledon than just the four in the magazine? made lots of drawings, but ah. those are the only four. I was almost afraid to show him what I'd done, especially because one is only a ball on a That's line. an amazing painting. That's an amazing <laughs> painting. That's that's one of my favorite Wayne Tebow's. You play tennis? No, but I watch a lot of it. I travel to a lot of tournaments and stuff. Mm. I haven't played since high school. But that one of the ball on the line, because you don't know if it's in the air or if it's on the ground. You don't. There's there's obviously Funny the Mondrian painting. thing. Funny painting. Uh, it's a really cool But painting. anyway, they, that was a marvelous two weeks. Have you been back? Did you ever go back to Wimbledon? No, I haven't. Did I go back? No. Mm. I've I, never been. 
It's wonderful. Wonders. If you love tennis, that's the one. Let's do a little cityscapes and freeway paintings. You know, as we mentioned before, the cityscapes are obviously related to San Francisco, while not being San Francisco. But especially for those of us who have spent a lot of our lives there, it's impossible to separate those paintings from from San Francisco. At some point, I'm guessing you had to decide that you were okay with the cityscapes being pretty close to being of a single city. I mean, they're definitely, yes. they're definitely not Kansas City. Yes. You know. <laughs> so why were you okay with Although that? Although the, uh, the roadways, the freeways, were, that was done, that was started at least, and done in Houston, Texas. Which is a lot like Los Angeles. Totally. Wait, wait, <laughs> wait. How did how did the freeway paintings start? In- well, I was invited uh, by Mrs. Demoniel to visit Rice University and do a demonstration for students. And we got acquainted. And so then I, uh, while I was there, I, I remember making that, starting that painting for some reason. So I, did, I did a shoe painting there. A very, a very Van Goghish shoe painting. Yeah, it's black a, shoes. Just shoes, rows of shoes. Yeah, and I remember she came on to watch me one Sunday while I was painting, and kept asking, "Why did you put that there?" And I had to say, "I, I, I don't know. Just, <laughs> I, I don't think she's very impressed." <laughs> so that's why in some of the freeways paintings there are smokestacks, and, and maybe. Because I, I didn't know they were they were Houstonian. There were some big building things going on. I remember and very lot of smoke. So why was it okay that so many of the cityscapes, all of the cityscapes, resemble San Francisco? Uh, I think for that dislocation idea, that uh, equilibrium, the falling, the uh, the danger of of balance and uh, earthquakes and so on. And where they would put something, where there was a kind of what I would call contextual impropriety. Yeah. That that thing should not be on that big pile of dirt, (laughs) I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) But it was fun to fool around with that again, uh, again, my old cartoon. One, One of the things about the freeway paintings that I didn't, no, until I was researching to talk to you. About eight or nine years ago, you told Eve Ashheim in this wonderful little book of a series of interviews with you that the freeway paintings were all over paintings, like Pollock, where, mm. where the, the painting goes end to end, top to bottom, fills the whole darn thing. Except for you had wanted to do all over paintings in a representational mode, and, and thus freeways and cars and the buildings. Simple question, why was all over painting, a la Pollock, only with a different subject matter, something that you wanted to do? I think something of my experience in New York with those abstract expressionists who were often talking about, particularly like Milton Resnick, Pollock, Barnett Newman, they were interested. They said, we do these big paintings because we want them to escape from the room and escape from themselves and come out and they would (laughs) sort of 
picturesquely say, we want them to dance out into the world. We don't want to contain in these. That's why we don't frame them. We just strip them or not even that. And that interested me as an idea that if you mm-hmm. could sort of suggest that, these freeways that would go on and on clear across the country and so on. That was one of the ideas. The problem with that is it's a lie because it, first of all, is contained. And if you don't pay enough attention to that, it's too likely to become more like wallpaper and doesn't self-contain and self integrate as a composition, which is such an important thing for paintings, I think. Paintings are little worlds, painted worlds, in my definition. So they need to be completed or have a sense of completion. They they need to stay alive, they need to have energy, they need to have tension and all of that. But finally, it should be a little complete world or view of the world. We had this wonderful trip just last year, going to see my big hero, Velasquez. Mm. That painting, <laughs> got, got to see it. Well, it's... Las Meninas, you mean? Yeah, Las Meninas. It's mostly just stuff, apart from the figures. And the mirror. You're, well, you're seeing the back of a canvas, all that section, is, that's about half the painting. Then there's the back part, which another section. He's standing there with his brush. And then this little group of people, the nuns and the maids and the dog and so on. It's an astounding little world that's uh, made itself almost as real as the world for me. Have you made a painting about Las Meninas? I haven't. No, I don't dare. (laughs) (laughs) We haven't talked about cakes and pies, so we should talk about cakes and pies for a minute. Back in the day, you purchased paints from Bay City Paints. This is in the early 60s, and found that their paints were too thick to achieve the textures you wanted for painting icing and cake. There's, There's a great little bit in the catalog for the Minetti Shrem show that focuses on this. You told an interview, an interviewer, I think it was Carol Mancusi and Garo about 15 years ago, that you sort of needed to whip up those paints and that you would then, when after you had whipped up the paints, would pretend you were actually icing the cakes in the paintings. Was the important thing about that the relationship between what you were making and Trompe l'Oeil? I think that trick of the eye painting style doesn't interest me much unless it's very low bas-relief painting. Hmm. Anytime you put a violin in or a gun, anything which comes out too far, for me it just absolutely doesn't work at all. It has to be like papers, stamps. Peanuts. About the paint, Bay City was a terrible paint. (laughs) It's... uh, (laughs) <laughs> it's like an enamel, really, and it's runny. It's like Pollock's use of duco paint, mm. automobile paint. He discovered that from Sequeiros, who used it in Mexico. 
when he was down there. But the paint which I used had to be more, you see, if you use runny, it doesn't form the grooves. In the ridges. It doesn't yeah. stay rigid. So you have to get it so it's viscous. That was the, the uh, reason why I had to abandon Bay City paints and just use actually uh, titanium white in its uh, basic form and then put with it. At that point, I was using that age-old uh, medium, a third turpentine, a third Damar, and a third linseed oil, I think. One of those three things. Did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, did you actually whip the paint? Like with a whisk or something? or a... No, you can do it with a brush. Get it enough so it'll sort of stand up in peaks. Or... So at about this time, you make a painting called Chocolate Meringue, and a couple of years later, The Great Neapolitan Pies. Meringue, of course, is whipped. Were you consciously extending a line between subject of the painting and what you had to do to make the painting? I didn't think of them as separate for some reason. There's a story, however, about Alan Stone decided on the first show that he wasn't going to serve wine. He was going to put pedestals up with actual pies and hang strips of suckers in cellophane or other things like that, rather to get the people interested. Well, he had a French baker make a meringue pie. And he said, that's not, that's not tall enough. That's just a little flimsy meringue. I want one really whipped up. So he went back, brought back another one. And I says, not, not high enough. He says, God damn it, that's about as high as you can make meringue. <laughs> so he, Alan brings out the painting of it. Oh, God, he says, that's not meringue, that's marshmallow. <laughs> Fake meringue. <laughs> you, you didn't change the title. <laughs> Did you paint meringue or marshmallow differently than you painted icing? I don't. Not very much. I don't mm. think. One of one of the uh, frostings I squeezed out of a tube. The paint came out of it. You, you mm. squeezed. Did you like the way that I worked? I think it's the one in the National Gallery I think you're right. show. Yeah. I think you're right. That's right. Did you like the way that worked? No, because it seemed too tricky for some reason. Tricky in terms of doing it or tricky in the visual? Well, I think I should have used a cake froster. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm going to try and do that, get, get a good one that you could really, you know, explore as a making... <laughs> writing and all that, rosettes and so on. Did you ever? I didn't. No. <laughs> you still could. <laughs> no, I've made a lot, of, uh, a lot of mistakes, which is part of it, but fun to think of it. You, know, you talked about <clears throat> one of the uh, reasons the Central Valley landscape was appealing was because no one else had really done it as a painter. Were cakes interesting as a still-life subject because... While there was a long still life tradition, mm -hmm. there were there were not a lot of cakes. It was a still life subject you could own. 
I didn't think of it then, but uh, I, I enjoyed always the long tradition of food painting. Mm -hmm. Some really beautiful things, Bruegel, and the little guy's got his hand in a pie, I think, and thumb in a pie or something. And that was great Dutch and Spanish spell life. Chardin. Food painting, Chardin. What a wonder. We haven't talked about much about your figurative paintings yet. When you worked at Universal Studios in Los Angeles in the late 1940s, I guess, maybe the early 50s, right around there? Just out of the Army, 45, 46, yeah, around there. I read that one of the things you did, you know, one of your jobs, was to run a spotlight following actors around the stage. That was in the high school days. Oh, that was earlier. That yeah, was earlier. That was when I was part of a stage crew in Polytechnic High School. So you told Eve Ashheim, the former student of yours, that running the spotlight was an influence on you as a painter. How? Well, uh, Gene Cooper says that. Oh. And his first early book talks a lot about the stage. And certainly it's important, I think. Important Whether in to what the way? Lighting the figure. I did Lots do that at Universal Studios where I had to, there was a wonderful art director, Misha Kalis, sort of legendary guy who hired me out of sympathy. <laughs> <laughs> he looked at my samples and said, those are the worst damn samples I've ever seen. <laughs> but it, I had a few photographs of my paintings and he he took me on that basis because I'm a painter he says and he was a pretty good impressionist painter he gave me the job of a great film they made called The Killers yeah that Hemingway story yeah had me read it and then told me to make uh, an ad for it we had to make an ad that fits this size for newspapers to billboards, right? And uh, he said, no, this is a, a dark story. There's uh, Ava Gardner. This is one of her early films. She's in a revealing black dress. I want her as in some way encased in, in those letters, killers. And so I did my best, came in, Looked at it and just blew his top. God, eh. I don't want to ask for a perfume ad. Because I'd made these little sweet little... <laughs> Anyways, get out of here before I kick your balls out. And the word out <laughs> made a big impression <laughs> on me. <laughs> but he was wonderful. He says, now here's the way to go about this. And he put up a tracing pad. He took a pet carton, carpenter's pencil with that big flat edge. <laughs> he just just tore the paper and he says, Kay! <laughs> anyway, he sent me back. And then I had to go and photograph it. That's what I was getting to. Photograph Ava Gardner with a photographer. And as, we're, as I'm leaving the office, he says, and make her show some legs. <laughs> So here I am, 21-year-old kid. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I'm supposed to tell Ava Gardner. So I tell the photographer, now, Misha wants you to tell Ava Gardner to show some legs. 
He said, I'm not going to tell her that. <laughs> I said, well, I'm not going to tell her. But anyway, I'm getting at it because you spotlight them. So I'm trying to get images to do. Anyway, the upshot was Ava comes, she's very flouncing around and so on. Now, what do you want me to do? Blah, blah, blah. I said, well, and you, she had a black dress on. <laughs> it took We took a few photographs, and then I said, well, I better tell her, because she was just kind of standing, and she did have her, her, a split here. In her dress. In her dress. So I, I said, the art, uh, the uh, Misha Kalis asked me to tell you to, when you're posing, because you're going to be like almost like a letter to show some leg. And she looks at me, says, so you want to see legs, do you? And she pulls up her dress like this. <laughs> legs. <laughs> I was so embarrassed, I couldn't see. But that was, I don't know why, what am I telling you all this stuff for? Anyway, I had a wonderful uh, time being a, trying to be a painter. So that, that light, that intensity of light that you would use right. yeah. in stage in Hollywood Later did on, I photographed you. Uh, several actors, and that was the thing, to really light them so that this shadow... I think he, uh, Gene reproduces some studio photographs mm. of that kind. Showing the shadow and showing the Hoot Gibson or somebody. We talked about Richard Diebenkorn <laughs> earlier. We haven't talked about Robert Bechtel. In 1977, you made a painting called 24th Street Intersection of an intersection of, you know, four-way San Francisco-esque intersection with power lines above it. It's a phenomenal painting. Well, Robert Bechtel lives around the corner from 24th Street. I think Bechtel was at 20th in Texas or something. Mm. Maybe still is. Were his paintings and maybe especially as prints of San Francisco hills and power lines important, interesting? I didn't know them. Didn't know did that. He's a good guy, good, good painter, but I don't use photography and think of it as a real enemy of painting. But those names are not correct. They're just Named right, right, that. right. Well, but in that case, I wondered if there was a, a tip <laughs> of the hat. You know. Yeah, you, you've all in, in. You've also made a number of paintings of you know where eighty percent of the painting is a window through which we see a view, and there's someone sitting at the very bottom of the painting, and we have mm. this moment of oh yeah of confusion and delight between flatness and recession and organizing the thing in our head. I'm 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 guessing those are a little bit informed by Elmer Bischoff or Hopper. Bischoff, Hopper, sure, yeah, there. Bischoff's a wonderful painter. He has a wonderful painting of someone in a library in a little orange sweater. That is awfully nice painting. Yeah, he was an influence also. I don't know people who've painted that way that have come into my mind at least. Maybe you know some that have used that idea, do you? The the idea of? Of a f figure in with a large enough window to see a uh, city. Bischoff. I mean, he's the only, I mean, I just think of it, you know, I think it's in your paintings. 
It's in some Bischoff's, although the city beyond the window in your paintings is much clearer. I guess we think or assume that when Pizarro in those late paintings where he's looking down at Parisian boulevards, yes. I guess we assume he's removed the window. But the figure's not there. But there's no figure there. We no. are the, yeah. No, those are marvelous those are paintings, amazing. yeah. I wanted to ask about a not, an undated painting of yours titled Condiment Bowls, which kind of look like paint cans but aren't quite. Are they uh, food bowls? Yeah. Is that a bit of a reference to the painter's place, you know, your take on John's paint cans or de Kooning's infamous sloppiness? Not to my knowledge. It was more yeah. kind of straight painting with those ovals that yeah. felt so nice. And there were a number of those. Yeah, and they're terrific. And they feel very much like paintings about painting, mm. even though you're painting condiments. Yeah, wonderful things in there. Do you like that idea of linking painting to the outside world by making paintings of things like condiments, but that are actually paintings about making paintings? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd still do that. Almost all of the uh, people, places, and things are repeated on and on still these days. If I want to paint a pie today, I just go and paint one or a series or whatever. I don't like the idea of a stasis of any kind. Every painting has its own measurement and condition of critical judgment. It's like when Catherine was so irritated with me because I brought little snapshots of my paintings to make prints. She was horrified. Why? She said, I don't, I don't want people coming here with their ideas. This should be original work. You should think of new ideas about painting. She went upstairs irritated, I mean, and she came down with a, a nice little lunch with a beer and an avocado and a sandwich. And she says, why don't you make a drawing of that? So I did. And actually, I did. <laughs> and then we had that discussion. And she, she said about originality, and I said, Catherine, you have to understand the way I feel about it is that every painting, if I'm going to paint a gumball machine now, all I have is this needle, a piece of copper, and that gumball has got to come up to the mark. Otherwise, yeah. I'm not. It's, there's nothing for me to copy. There's no color. <laughs> no, the size is different. It's a new problem because it's and a different medium. She she tight. She tells that story on herself as a what she thought mm. of as her naivete. So now she lets me make all kinds of mistakes. <laughs> we never print. So there's a great example, or there are two great examples of your having made work about other work, other, other artists' work. So it's interesting to hear that story and then to kind of try to segue to this one. One's a painting called 35 Cent Masterworks from 1970-72, which is just an outrageously funny painting. I mean, there's a lot of humor in a lot of your work, and, I'm, and, and, and it's totally here. There's a, a little 35-cent postcard version of Cezanne, Mont-Saint-Victoire, uh, Matisse's The Surf, a De Chirico, a Degas, a Monet, a Mondrian, a Velasquez. You know, so it's, it's both this hat tip and riff on <laughs> painters you love. 
and and another painting kind of in the same vein um, but done differently is a 1962 painting called four pinball machines in which the vertical part of the pinball machine so not the part you're playing pinball on but the lit up part that has the score and tells you how you're doing and all that the four pinball machines are that, that vertical part is your having a little snarky fun with forms that we would know from Jasper John's painting from, from Frank Stella, from Ryman. And in both of those paintings, you were un, being unusually direct in addressing other painters. Usually painters kind of hide their address of other painters a little bit, mm. but this was boom, right? Both of these paintings are just taking them head on and early in your career in both examples. What made it okay to do that? Painters are so shy about that, but that's the way most painters have learned, making copies. Remember, Matisse was a kind of professional copy for a while. And never shied away from it, really. And never worried about it. I have my students where they have to do it in order mm-hmm. to get intimately connected to what painting is about and short circuit with some sense of in- intimacy how it feels to paint a certain way or to move your brush or to have to account for a certain shape or a character of brush strokes or whatever. Those are the tools that everybody uses. Interestingly, I didn't realize any influence in those pinball machines. Oh, come on. Oh, come on. I have to say the truth. Subconsciously, maybe? It startled me. I'm going to have you point out the ones that the influence of those. I'll show you. I'll show you when the tape's off, or I'll show you. I'll show you at the end (laughs) when I can move the computer. (laughs) I'm happy to hear it, but I want to see it directly. Oh, I'll. I'll. Yeah, I'll, I'll, and we'll have images on manpodcast.com. There are two other specific paintings that I suspect are you consciously having a little funny bone fun with your peers. 1961 painting drink syrups, four vats of brightly colored mm, drink liquid. Right. Is that you having fun with Ellsworth Kelly? No? Mm-mm. Just reads that way? No. There might be some others that Kelly and uh, was directly used, the drink syrups. And there's a, uh, a 1966 pastel called Bale Rose. They, they look like, and of course the title suggests they are, bales of hay, rectangular bales of hay on a field. Uh, yeah. Is that is that having a little fun with Donald Judd? No, it has fun with Manet, Monet. Ah, where the haystacks have been bailed up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, I had never read, and I'm embarrassed to say I hadn't even noted existed, an artist statement, which is really a short essay, that you provided to MoMA in 1962. They asked you for an artist statement about your work, and it's maybe 800, 900 words long, and it's reproduced in the, at the end of the catalog for the Minetti Shrem show, which is how I found out about it. And it's quite amazing, and it's where your art still is all these decades later. Do you remember writing it? Do you remember, was it specifically for MoMA or if you'd written it for something else? For MoMA? San Francisco or? New York. 
New York. I don't remember them ever asking me anything. Oh, all right. But Kenneth Baker, the art critic, when he saw the show at first, asked me for a statement. Is it oh, maybe that's a, a lollipop tree yes. worth yes. Yes. painting? Yes. That was for Kenneth Baker. Oh. And he didn't know that. I didn't know he was going to use it. Uh, he just uh, Well, Wayne, Wayne Tebow, it's been a pleasure, a thrill. Thank you so much. Not at all. <laughs> Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents The Glamour and Romance of Oscar de la Renta, an exhibition celebrating the illustrious life and career of the renowned fashion designer. Nearly 70 ensembles sourced from de la Renta's corporate and personal archives, the archives of French label Pierre Balmain, private lenders, and the collection of the Museum of Fine Arts Houston are featured. On view through January 28th. Visit mfah.org slash de la renta for more. Welcome back. This past week, we lost painter and sculptor Jack Witten, who died on January 20th at the age of 78. Witten was a guest on this program twice, including for a live audience taping at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego in conjunction with the major retrospective of his painting career. That show was curated by my guest, Catherine Canjo. Her show traveled to the Walker Art Center and the Wexner Center for the Arts and played a major role in Witten's career gaining the national attention it had so long deserved. Canjo organized it when she was a curator at MCASD. Now she's the museum's director. Catherine Canjo, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. I'm glad to be here. Your Jack Witten show, um, which uh, was a three-museum national show in 2014 and 15, was really the exhibition that gave Jack Witten the career-spanning national look um, that had long been overdue. There had been other shows at PS1, at the Rose, um, but, but for the most part, you know, Jack had been the quintessential New York painter. Why was it a show you wanted to do? It was overdue, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> it was a lot overdue. And th- that made it a pleasure to do. I mean, to have to have so much material with which to work, but also with the challenge of it. I mean, how to bracket it and put it in one exhibition only. I mean, there's there's so many stories to be told with Jack. I I think honestly, I just felt um, a tiny bit stunned that it hadn't happened. I mean, Jack was an artist I whose work I had seen early in my career and been puzzled by. And then I continued to follow it and watch it and continue to be puzzled by it. And I think that's because Jack was always moving ahead of time. And maybe it took the span of time for me as a curator to be able to look back retrospectively and make some sense of it. But I also think that those 
other exhibitions that have came along the way or other narratives around Jack that, that developed ahead of time gave me something to react to, you know, and to position the show so that it had a reason for being. I mean, I think one of the, the um, exciting revelations of, you know, our show, five the five decades of painting was to bring forward the, the early ghost paintings from the 1960s that had been seen, you know, one or two at a time, but frankly made most sense in my mind to be seen chronologically as preceding his gestural work. That was, that was absolutely the highlight of, of the show. I mean, there were, there were lots of highlights of the show for me, I guess, but, but there was a wall at the beginning, you know, kind of the first uh, enclosed gallery of the show in San Diego um, to see them, um, you really had to kind of walk up and it was a really unusually intimate experience, especially in contrast with some of the really big spaces in that building. And that was, yeah, I remember that, that being really great. Do you remember how talking with, with Jack about doing the show worked? Do you remember telling him you wanted to do it? How did that go? How, and how, how did that go? Oh, it was a process. I mean, it was a process and, um, it was about developing a relationship with him. I think for his decades of working and, and probably not getting the attention he deserved, that he was a tiny bit wary, you know? And then here's this um, woman, you know, a, a curator on the West Coast who says, hey, I'm the one. I want to do the show of you, as you said, this quintessential New York painter. That uh, I had to earn his trust, which I think is is appropriate. And I'm you know, proud I did. But it's, uh, you know, I've, I've found myself over the last few days um, going through my photographs of Jack. And each time I look at, you know, being in the studio and I think, oh, that, oh, this is when he revealed his drawings to me. Oh, this is where he took out the tools. You know, here's where he showed me uh, the cast, the molds rather for the, yeah. for the cast paint. So it was a slow dance, but I mean, it was lovely. And, um, you know, what, what a finish to have it culminate in the exhibition. So what was he like in the studio? I mean, I, I talked to Jack a bunch of times um, on tape and not, but, um, you know, I, I don't do really do studio visits. I never went to, to Jack's studio. What was what was that place like and what was he like in it? Well, you know, Jack, um, you have done such beautiful interviews with him and you know he's he's a bit of a philosopher. He's certainly um, a talker. You know, he, he tells a story for sure. But in the ga- in the studio, rather, he he was more um he let the work work on you right it it was it wasn't the the language full encounters that that his interviews are or that you have when you're you know breaking bread and sharing a meal with him uh, i think he was always respectful to allow the time to um for the viewer to see and to react to the work. And I, I think he had to understand that um in the studio visits you you'd move between you know the arresting image of, of a singular piece, even even if there was, you know, I'm trying to think like six pieces up on the walls, you know, there could be more than one thing he was working on or he had on view in the studio. And so, you know, you, you go towards one because they pull you in. That's what his work does. You know, you can't not walk toward the painting. But then out of the side of your eye, you see his own little um, kind of you know, Ertzot's altarpieces he's made out of out of photographs or um, exhibition announcements from his from his artist friends, or you see the food that he's about to prepare you for lunch. You know, so so it was this um, a very full experience that you you felt you were you were um, getting that that one-on-one communion with a work of art, but in this in this very complex context, which really wasn't always filled with talking. 
more looking. Over the course of Jack's career, he developed lots of different ways of making paintings, lots of ways of putting paint onto canvas, um, many of which had nothing to do with brushes and had to do with tools, uh, objects, things he built, constructed, devised. How did he introduce you to everything from the developer to other ways he'd come up with of building paintings? It was a slow introduction. I really think, you know, that links back to your question about how he responded to, to the invitation for the exhibition and, and the need to build trust and to build a relationship. I, I think in some ways, Jack was a, he was an artist, but he, he you know, he built his canvases. I mean, they, they were built and they were made, as you say, with, with tools and um, different devices or developers. Um, and he didn't want to foreground that. You know, but everybody wants to know, like, how how did he make this? You know, part of part of Jack's story is that his his paintings, while so signature, you know, while so you know each piece is so Jack Witten, yet they're never that that painting made with the wrist or the um, autographic kind of gesture. So, so you think, how did you do it? And I think you know Jack was was protective of of the processes he developed, even as he would tell you, oh, it was just a tool, it's just a tool. I just made a big a big tool, <laughs> you know. I mean, like, what exactly did you make? So I mean, so every time he he would open up more, pull forward, you know, uh, pull open a drawer, you know, like a um, print storage drawer, and then in there would be pieces of cast paint, or again, the molds in which he cast paint, or his tools, which were, you know, kinds of rakes and combs and scrapers, squeegees. Um, sometimes they were small and could be laid, laid in drawers. You felt like, wow, you know, the guy trusts me and he's, he's taking me in. And I think it's because he knew that me then that I wasn't going to, I don't know, treat it like a, a gimmick or like you, that you solve something. Cause of course that's not what it's about, like how he came up with the tool he came up with. It's, it's the result of, of, um, all of his, his process. It's, it's, it's in the painting. I think he had to trust that or find that you trust that you were responding to the work and not just the strategy or the process somehow. I was often struck by how he would, in conversation, including away from a microphone, would remind you that his historical experience went back to the Cedar Bar era and that he knew those guys, um, he knew those men but never made a big, you know, men who were big and brushy and had very specific ways of, of throwing or applying paint on, on, onto canvas, a, a thing that became inexorably tied with what they did and what they made. But at the same time, Jack himself, in, until an interviewer did or a questioner did, never drew attention to how he put down paint. He just kind of let you, or me, um, over time become very aware that while he knew those guys, he rejected the way they worked and the way they put paint down and found his own ways to do it. I think that's a good observation. I mean, for two reasons. I mean, I mean probably for plenty of reasons. But one, you're talking about how he's built a painting or, or, or made a painting and, and that as a kind of comparison to that you know, heroic era of the New York school. So that I think Jack, I mean, Jack, Jack has a place in art history, but I think he was conscious of the fact that he was making space in art history. But also what you said, you know, like going back, reminding you back to as a kind of a time travel, you know, I mean, it was his life. He was, he was living it. But, 
but Jack is an artist in terms of his interests and his subject matter reflects our cultural period, you know, so I think of Jack in general as a kind of time traveler, you know, that he, um, you know, he wholly absorbed the New York school, even though he was a different generation of it, you know, and, and his memorial paintings are tributes to, you know, artistic cultural heroes, black leaders, you know, that, that in some way he, you know, he's this abstract portrait uh, I'm sorry, he's like a portrait painter, an abstract portrait painter of history painting, something. Do you know he yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he 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 claims time. Yeah, no, I I totally get that. <laughs> In the last few days I have found myself thinking about what I don't know about Jack and his career. And one of the things I've thought a lot about is how on the couple of times that I've had Gary Simmons on the show, I think both times, I don't know if it made air both times, but both times Gary mentioned Jack and how important Jack was to him. Um, Jack taught for decades in New York. One of the things I don't know about Jack's career is his role and impact as a teacher. For some artists, that's you know fundamental to their narrative, John Baldessari being probably the most famous American example of that. Did Jack talk about his role and experience as a teacher and about his students with you? Jack very much spoke about his time teaching and his his role as as a teacher to artists not just the role of the hierarchical role of teacher and student but 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 you know teaching artist to artist again i think he um treated his students with a level of respect and certainly i've heard that from gary and and other artists who who studied with him but i think for him the the classroom uh, you know, he maybe had a he had his his own study at Cooper Union, and he was in the classroom. Uh, for him, he talked, by the way, about being a student of being when he came to Cooper Union, being in a segregated classroom. You know, to have white students was was the you know surprising thing for him. So he had his classroom experience, but I think even the Cedar Bar was a classroom experience for him. And when he does talk about uh, meeting Franz Klein or, or Willem de Kooning, he talks about their generosity to them, to him, and how they'd say, hey, man, you can get some uh, good canvas down on Canal Street. You know, they'd give him tips, like artist to artist, and that that charged him, you know, it invigorated him to, to get that respect from somebody he so admired. So at any rate, I, I think uh, all of that mattered to Jack as a teacher, you know, and he carried that forward as, as a teacher. And I think, of course, he's such a um, technician and a painter that to be able to describe the processes that he was using or the the way paint handles or dries or, or to, to argue about different pigments, you know, just from a formal level was exciting for him. So you did the big Jack Whitten show. It was uh, entirely a paintings show. What are the shows or examinations of Witten's work and career that you hope to see in the next decade or two? Oh, we will see. I mean, we will see his really rather top secret sculpture. Baltimore um, the and the Man. Be- exactly. And that, I told you how there's always kind of a slow reveal with Jack. I mean, his sculpture practice was something that he developed at his time in 
Greece. And so he would work on sculptures in the summer when he would, when he would be overseas. Um, and it was really sort of two separate practices. And there's terrific connections between the sculptures and the paintings, but I felt mm-hmm. let's focus on the paintings now the, the, that can come. But the other thing that can come is, of course, a works on paper exhibition. And I mean, that for me was probably one of the hardest things to not include um, his works on paper in our space. We, we physically didn't have enough room to do it. But I, I also, you know, sort of felt that the, the works on paper deserve their own media specific consideration, or they certainly can, can handle that. So, I mean, just from, from you know, uh, for those two media that are kind of the obvious shows that that are waiting to be done but there are many stories there and um i look forward to all the future exhibitions if i if i remember correctly he made an annual self-portrait and i don't think more than maybe half a dozen of them have ever been exhibited my memory might be slightly off on that but i think that's right i'm not i'm not sure of the number but the when i did the exhibition with jack the latest painting or, you know, the most recent painting at that time in the show and then the painting that, that graces the cover of the catalog was a self-portrait of Jack. You know, it's one I'm staring at right now and um, thinking very fondly uh, on him. Catherine Canjo, thanks. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.